You are listening to Bump City, the podcast, season two, episode number 10. Thank you for joining me on this Monday. Here is the rundown for you. Number one, we're going to talk about the best wide receiver duos in the NFL. Guys have been moving around. I'll give you my thoughts. Number two, the NFL is proposing a new overtime rules change. Are you with it? Are you against it? We'll break it down. Number three, new offensive coordinator in Denver, Nathaniel Hackett, says, look, I'm going to let Russell do what he wants to do. What does that mean? We'll break it down. Number four, the NCAA tournament is still going on. And why do I believe in the Zags every year? They let me down every year. Did it again this year. Number five, we got a new segment. That's what she said. I'm bringing in Jennifer Bumpus. She's going to break down the Oscars last night. And as usual, we ended with the Let It Burn segment. That is therapeutic for me. I get something off of my chest. That's the rundown for today. Bump City of the Podcast, Season 2, Episode 10. Let's get it. Topic number one, let's get right into it. I am a receiver, so you know I'm excited about this one. Who are the best wide receiver duos in the NFL? Things have changed. Tyreek Hill is no longer with the Chiefs. Okay, you got Devontae Adams who made a move. You got... Allen Robinson for the Chicago Bears, he makes a move. So things have changed a little bit in the NFL. I believe I did this segment two years ago, and my top five list looks nothing like it does right now. So let's get right into it. I'm going to give you the top five. Top five best duos in the NFL when it comes to receivers. The first one, I got to stay home in Seattle and go with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. Russell Wilson is gone. We know that. Okay, if Russell Wilson was here or a veteran quarterback was here, they might be higher on this list. But because you got Drew Locke or maybe someone else who's going to be at the quarterback spot, you really don't know. And if you are a receiver or you love the game of football, you know that receiver success relies on a lot of things going right. And if you do not have a quarterback to get it done, your numbers might go down. DK's numbers went down last year just because Russell was out three games. So instead of going for 1,000 yards, he goes for 967 but 12 touchdowns. Can you imagine what it would have been like if Russell Wilson was there all season. Then you got Tyler Lockett for the third straight year. He goes for over 1,000 yards, 73 receptions, 1,175 yards, and eight touchdowns. Again, if this duo had a quarterback, they might be higher up on this list. I don't know what Drew Locke is going to bring to the table. He played as a rookie. I believe he went 4-1 or 5-1 second year. Teddy beats him out. COVID hits. A bunch of things deterred this man from having, I guess, showing progression in his development, I should say. So now Pete Carroll brings them over to Seattle and says, look, we're going to ride with them. We'll see if they bring somebody else in or they draft somebody. So because we don't know what's going on at the quarterback position, I got DK and Lockett at number five. DK, your big receiver, can go down the field, stretch the field out, go across the middle. He's been evolving every year. Lockett, Mr. Do-Everything, Tony Toe's tap on the sideline. We know what he brings to the table entering his eighth year. He's getting up there in years. But number five, I got DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett Quarterback, question mark. At the number four spot, we are going down to South Beach, MIA. Miami has been making moves. The biggest move they made so far this year, Tyreek Hill. Snatched him over from the Chiefs. He is getting $30 million a year for four years. You team him up with Waddle, the rookie receiver out of Alabama, had a year. 1,000 yards, six touchdowns. Tyreek Hill had 111 receptions, 1,200 yards, and nine touchdowns. But like I mentioned before, we got to look at the quarterback and see what they're going to be able to do for him. Now, you got Tua over there. All right, in 13 games, he had 2,600 yards, 16 touchdowns, 10 interceptions. The plus side with Tua, he is going to get the football out of his hands quickest, all right? And he has the third quickest release time in the NFL. 
that means we're going to see a lot of check downs, a lot of dump offs, a lot of screens to two of the fastest men in this league, Waddle and Tyreek Hill. Tua is not comfortable throwing the football down the field a mile. That's just not what he does. I haven't seen that since the national championship game against Georgia. When they ran that cover two, he looks the safety off and throws a go. I just haven't seen it. Has he thrown the football down the field? Of course. He's an NFL quarterback. That's what he does. He has a long of 65, but that's not what he wants to do. Now, you team those guys up with Chase Edmonds in the backfield, and you still got Jasicki at the tight end spots. You would think, man, I heard Dan Orlovsky say, look, this team is going to be basketball on grass. All Tua needs to do is get it to his speedy receivers, get it to his tight end, hand it off to Chase Edmonds, and they should be a top five offense in this league. All right, but if you if you team up Waddle and Hill with any other top five quarterback in this league, you automatically say this might be the number one duo in the league. But again, because of the quarterback spot, we have to take that into consideration. But they will be able to stretch the field out. The question is, is Tua willing to stretch the field out? You would think with these weapons, Tua and those guys have a legit chance to turn this thing around and be contenders. Even when Brian Flores was there, they were in the mix. Now you got all these pieces around you, MIA. What are you going to do? So number four, receiver or receiving duos in the league, the number four spot goes to Waddle and Hill down in Miami. At number three, we're going to the Midwest. We got the Bengals, man. Jamar Chase and T. Higgins. Crazy that these names are even coming out of my mouth right now at the three spot. Going into this season, honestly, when the Bengals picked up Jamar Chase, I didn't think he had it. I'm like, look, he's going to be a good receiver. I don't see him being a game breaker. Boy, was I wrong, man. The kid had 81 receptions, 1,400 yards, and 13 touchdowns. A one-on-one nightmare. All right, the Bengals could have won the Super Bowl if Joe Burrow had enough time to see that Waddle broke off Jalen Ramsey, something nasty, and was wide open. That's what I like about this dude. One-on-one matchups, he's good to go. Then his run after the catch is second to only one guy, and that is Cooper Cup. T. Higgins is, is a quiet good receiver all right 74 receptions a thousand yards six touchdowns when we talked about the quarterback position they are teamed up with the most accurate quarterback in the nfl in joe burrow 34 touchdowns 14 interceptions completed 70 percent of his passes and the great thing about joe burrow is he can buy time with that booty offensive line they got he better be able to buy time but you got now a receiver in Jamar Chase coming into his second year who has proven he knows that he can play. And Mr. Consi- Consistent T. Higgins, 1,000 yards there. I like this duo. Now, they're playing in the AFC. We all know how tough this AFC is. But they have a running back in Joe Mixon and kind of loosen things up a little bit. But it doesn't matter. You want to play tight defense? Both these guys can beat you one-on-one. And they're teamed up with the most accurate quarterback in the league. Can they do it again? I don't think the Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. I don't think they're going to be contenders. I think that was their window. They shot it. They missed it. They might have to wait a couple more years. We'll see what these guys do in the draft. It was a great story last year, but the one thing that can be consistent is Joe Burrow playing great at quarterback and these two guys going off. Love what they bring to the table at that number three spot. I got Higgins and Chase. At the number two spot, we're going back to Cali, going down to L.A., no other than Cooper Cup and Allen. Now, they picked up Allen from the Chicago Bears. Allen didn't have a great year last year. Now, we have to take into consideration, again, the quarterback situation. You got a rookie in Fields trying to lead the way, doing what he can. Robinson only played in 12 games, 400 yards, one touchdown. I get it. But you look at the previous years, we know what he brings to the table. 
Now you're teaming him up with the Triple Crown winner, Cooper Cup, 145 receptions, 1,947 yards, 16 touchdowns. Now, when they brought Allen over, the first thing I thought about was, man, you're going to have Cooper Cup. You're going to have Allen. You're going to have Robert Woods, maybe Odell Beckham. Now, Robert Woods, they let him go. They might be waiting on Odell Beckham to get healthy later on in the season and pick him up. But just a one-two combo, this is number two by far. One, because Cooper Cup is going to do the heavy lifting. We know that. He can play any position, inside, outside, go across the middle, run any route, best yards after the catch. And now you team him up with a guy who can really stretch the field. That's the thing about Cooper Cup. Not the fastest dude, but still able to stretch the field. You team him up with a legit 4-3, type dude, that's going to be a deadly combination. You got to get the run game going. You have to get your tight ends involved. But if you team Cooper Cup up with just an above-average receiver, that might be a, a nasty one-two combo. You team him up with an elite receiver, imagine what Sean McVay and Matthew Stafford and these guys are going to do when it comes to throwing the football. I like this duo, they are number two in the NFL. I think you know who number one is going to be. At the number one spot, we got the guy who changed the game. Devontae Adams was the highest paid receiver in the league for about three to four days. And then Tyreek Hill came in and stole that. But he's getting paid $28 million a year. And he is teamed up with Hunter Renfro. Now, the reason why I like this combination, because you have a true slot receiver with a true outside receiver. When I was coming up, that slot position, it wasn't as valued as it is now. But the way the game is going, you're stretching the field out. or You're throwing the football 60% of the times in most offenses. You need a guy who's going to be able to work the middle of the field, and that's exactly what Renfro does. 103 receptions, 1,000 yards, and nine touchdowns. You look at Devontae Adams, 123 receptions, 1,553 yards, and 11 touchdowns. Think about Devontae Adams, too, man. He's deadly in the red zone. He's not super fast, but can beat you deep, and he runs the dig better than anybody in a game. I don't know if it was the quarterback. Maybe was, there was an Aaron Rodgers connection there, but you can almost guarantee when the game was on the line, it's third and long, everybody's running verge, Devontae Adams is going across the middle. Now, you add these two with Darren Waller, a great tight end in the league, Josh Jacobs, a good running back, and Derek Carr at the QB spot. Carr, 4,800 yards, 23 touchdowns, 14 interceptions, and completed 68% of his passes. So not only is he getting one of the best receivers in the game, he's getting his old college teammate. When these two, Carr and Adams, were at Fresno State, they led the country in receptions, yards, all that good stuff, all the important categories when it comes to quarterbacks and receivers, them together were a dynamic duo. Now he gets to do it with his boy in the league. Devontae Adams already bought a house next to Derek Carr. They're already working out. They're doing their thing. There's no substitute for chemistry. And with Devontae Adams, you put him on any offense, and he is going to produce. Now you put him with an offense that has this old-school quarterback with him. You have one of the elite tight ends in the league and a guy underneath that is going to attract these linebackers, these safeties when they're rolling down, and open up throwing lanes all down the field. I'm excited to see what these two do together. All right, so to run it back through, we got – DK and Lockett at number five. We got Waddle and Hill at number four. We got Chase and Higgins at number three. We got Cup and Allen at number two. And then number one, we got Devontae Adams and Hunter Renfro. The game is turning in receivers' favors. We're getting money. They're throwing the ball. I wish I was born in 95 and not 85. I might still be in the league getting some of this money. Those are my wide receiver duos in the NFL. Next topic.
Change is coming in the NFL. At least there is potential for there to be some type of rule change when it comes to overtime. Now, traditionally, back when I was growing up, football teams, they go on overtime. Whoever scores first, it's sudden death. They move on. So what I saw growing up were a lot of field goals winning the game, right? You, you get the kickoff. You get the ball. Return the ball to about the 30-yard line. If you go about 35 yards on a, on a drive, then your kicker has a chance to win the ball game. I never was a fan of kickers deciding the game, especially on the very first possession. Nothing against kickers. You need them. They are necessary. But to have all these guys out there tackling and running, defending the ball, snatching the ball out the air, doing all this hard work to leave it up to a kicker just didn't seem right to me. Again, I understand who they are. I know they are necessary. It's a skill. Not many people can kick a football, not knocking what they do. But I like the game to be decided by the guys who play 90% of the time on the football field. So then what does the NFL do? They say, all right, we're going to switch it up. Now, if you score a field goal on your first possession, that doesn't equate a win. The opposite team gets the ball. They have a chance to go down and score and win the game. They score a touchdown. The game is over. Felt a little better about that. Felt a little better because now the thing that I hated the most, a field goal winning an overtime game, doesn't exist anymore. But if that team were to go down and score a touchdown their very first time touching the rock, then the game's over. Still kind of a sudden death, but you eliminate the field goal kicker. At least you're making teams drive down the field and score a touchdown to win it. Got a little bit better. I'm seeing that. I'm like, all right, they're, they're making progress. But now, last year, we were robbed of greatness. Like, we saw Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen go after it. Josh, Josh Allen battles back, gets his team in an overtime. But you knew as soon as the Chiefs won that coin toss that they were probably going to go down and win this ball game. Why? Because you got Patrick Mahomes. You had Travis Kelsey. At the time, you had Tyreek Hill. You have one of the greatest offenses we've ever seen. And what teams tend to do in, in overtime for some reason, especially defensively, you just start to play soft. And that's one of my pet peeves. Like, play the defense that got you into that position, especially if you came back. Like, play the defense you play in the third quarter when you're trying to secure a win. I hate when I see teams get into overtime or get into these last drive situations, and now they're playing prevent, cover four, everybody's deep. You're allowing a five-yard catch to turn into a 10- or 15-yard catch. Man, kill that noise and play the same defense you play to start the game. So now the NFL, there are two teams who uh, propose these rules. I believe the, the Colts were one of them, and I want to say the Texans were the other one. One of these teams says, look, man, have each team get a possession. The only way the team who gets a possession first can win the ball game is if they score a touchdown and go for a two-point conversion. And we're getting better. I like that you can score a touchdown and not go for two, and now the second team gets possession. But scratch the two-point conversion. It should just be possession for possession. If one team gets the football and they score a field goal, the other team should get the football and see if they can score a touchdown to win it. If one team gets the football to start, they score a touchdown, the other team should get a chance to see if they can score a touchdown. It's almost like you're being penalized for not winning the coin flip. And just like I don't want the game to be decided by a kicker, I don't want the game to be decided by a coin flip either. I mean, it's all luck at this point. Now, you do have to get on the field. You do have to still play great defense. You still have to execute on offense. But why not let both teams get a shot at this? Why not let two quarterbacks who've been grinding all year to get themselves in this position, if one can extend it and get it in the OT, man, he deserves to touch the rock. That's all I'm saying. He touched the rock, goes three and out, then the other team played great defense. Good for them. But 
NFL, you are almost there. Almost there. It's almost like you got to peel back so many layers with the NFL and you got to beat around the bush when it comes to rule changes and other things. Just do what everyone wants. Forget the two-point conversion. Now, I heard Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin says, look, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not scared of sudden death. And Mike Tomlin is just an OG, man. He's like, look, it don't matter. My defense is going to stop you or my offense is going to score. He ain't scared of the sudden death. And I can respect that. Triple OG, OG, right? He has his way of thinking. But uh, me personally, no, nah, I want both teams to get the ball. It's, it's, it's almost like I feel like I'm getting soft now, huh? Everyone gets a chance. Everyone gets a ribbon. That's what I feel like right now. But it only feels fair that both teams get a chance to win it. Could you imagine if Patrick Mahomes goes down, he scores, and then uh, we get Josh Allen an opportunity to come back, and he comes back, and then Pat Mahomes has to go down. It becomes a shootout. This is what we want to see. You pay these quarterbacks all this money to be the face of your your uh, your organization, the face of the NFL, man. Make these dudes put back-to-back drives together and win a ball game. The NFL, you are almost there. You're almost there. Not quite, but I see you working. Next topic. Yes, we are still talking about Russell Wilson. When you have a franchise quarterback leave the Northwest, which is where I am located, 10 years he's been in the game up here, taking these guys to two Super Bowls, being in the playoff mix almost every single year. Yes, we're going to talk about Russell Wilson at least one more time on my podcast. But today we're focusing on his new offensive coordinator, Nathaniel Hackett. Now, Nathaniel Hackett said, look, this quote, once we get to know him, understand him, we will build around him. So what's it going to be is going to be what Russell likes to do. This is exactly why Russell Wilson is in Denver. Because in Seattle, it wasn't what Russell wants to do. It's what Russell wants to do for a little bit. But then we got to get back to who we want to be. And I'm speaking as if I'm Pete Carroll, which is a team that runs the football and plays good defense. Now, in what year was that? 2020, Russell went off. 40 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, over 4,000 yards. And he was cooking at the beginning of the season. The first four to six weeks, he is doing his thing. He's in the MVP uh, candidacy. We're talking about him. Maybe he's finally going to get a vote this year. But then what happens? Teams start running too high. You lose to the New York Giants at home with Colt McCoy at the quarterback spot. You start turning the football over in situations where you shouldn't turn the football over. And Pete Carroll says, hold on. We've tried this. It's not working anymore. Let's reel it back in and run the football. And that's not what Russell Wilson wants. Like, we have to understand Russell Wilson is at a point of his career where he feels as if he is one of the top three QBs in this league. And over the past four years, he's been in the top five easily. Easily he's been in the top four or five QBs in this league. But in Seattle, he feels like he wasn't treated as if. In Denver, he is going to be the guy. He is going to be able to walk up to the line of scrimmage, check out of anything he wants. He's going to be able to go into the film room with his quarterback coach, his offensive coordinator, and have his hands all over the game plan. In Denver, he will be the guy. In Seattle, he was our guy, a guy that we drafted in the third round, that we helped develop, that we helped get to this point. And it's almost like you need to leave a situation, a game, a different amount of respect. I don't think Pete Carroll and John Snyder just weren't listening to Russell Wilson. I mean, goodness gracious, they got rid of Bevel because of Russell. They got rid of Schottenheimer. These are offensive coordinators because of Russell. They bring in Shane Waldron because of Russell, right? They did a lot of things because of Russell, but for some reason, Russell felt like his voice was not loud enough with the Seattle Seahawks. 
perception is everything. Again, in Seattle, he was our guy. In Denver, he will be the guy. These fans in Denver are hoping that he goes over there and he is the savior. He is the next John Elway. He is the next Peyton Manning. And I guarantee you, when Russell was secretly flying over there and having these conversations, one of the topics was, look, am I going to be able to do what I want to do? Am I going to be able to check out of stuff? How aggressive are we going to be throwing the football? Even though they have a good running back over there in Denver and Williams. They still have three good receivers, and Russ is going to want to control the game. And and honestly, like, there's no reason why they shouldn't let Russell do his thing. All right, since 2017, he's had 30-plus touchdowns four times. In 2020, he had 40 touchdowns. The last four seasons, he has a QB rating over 100. He was 20-4 and in 2020. In 2020, he helped produce the best offense in franchise history. There is reason for Russell Wilson to want to be the guy and be able to make the checks and have a bigger seat at the table. I think I just think that when you are developed in a system, a system under Pete Carroll, that foundation is running the football in great defense. There's only so far you can push it when it comes to the type of control you have over the offense if you want to be throw heavy, pass heavy, getting the football in the air. And he has the weapons. He had the weapons in Seattle to do that. But at some point, egos and philosophies don't line up anymore. And I think that's what we saw in Seattle. So now Nathaniel Hackett is saying, look, I'm going to do whatever Russell Wilson wants to do. And as uh, a new offensive coordinator, bring in a franchise quarterback, that's probably the angle you need to go at. Russell has been here. He has proven. All right, Nathaniel Hackett, you're in a new situation. Your best bet is to do whatever makes the quarterback comfortable. Good for you. But at some point, he's going to have his own ideas. I'm talking about Nathaniel Hackett. He's going to have his own ideas. And if things aren't working out, if Russell does come out and throws a bunch of interceptions the first few weeks, does he have the backbone and the support of the organization to pull back and say, okay, Russ, maybe we need to switch it up a little bit? And if and when he does that, how is it going to be received by Russell Wilson? This is not the Russell Wilson of 2012, 13, 14, and 15. This guy is a bona fide superstar in this league, and he believes it. And when quarterbacks believe they are superstars in this league, they start having demands. And if those demands aren't met, then they get grumpy, and they go to the media. We saw that with Russell Wilson a couple years ago, went to the media because he was grumpy. I'm interested to see how this thing plays out. Hackett, good luck with Russell Wilson. I hope you guys are on the same page when it comes to philosophy and throwing the football and all that good stuff. Russell Wilson, good luck over there. I'm not going to be, like, cheering for him, but I'm not hating on his downfall. I just think that Nathaniel Hackett might be setting himself up to be, like, the backup OC and letting Russell do his thing. Can Russell handle it? We shall see. Next topic. We got a bonus segment today on Bump City, the podcast, season two, episode 10. I got my lovely wife, Jennifer Bumpus, on the line. Henny from the block. What's up? How you doing? Hey, welcome to my show. <laughs> <laughs> She's taking over. It is now Bump City, J. Henny podcast for the rest of this segment. Rest of this. Hey, so I know, I know you know, because we were sitting on the couch last night and you go, Hey, did you see this? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And Will Smith went on stage and smacked the you-know-what out of Chris Rock. Now, for context, Chris Rock was like, he sees Jada Pinkett in the front row with Will Smith. He goes, Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane, too. I'm looking forward to it. Will seems like he's laughing, but then something changes. He goes on stage. He smacks Chris Rock. He sits back down. In my perspective as a man, I'm like, 
okay, he's protecting his wife's honor. I don't think it was probably appropriate. You are Will Smith. This is the Oscars. You're going to get an award. But he went upstage and he did that. From a woman's perspective, break this down for me. What did you see? What are you feeling? I mean, I think I have multiple lenses here, but I really think that that entire relationship is complicated. It's like on Facebook, right? It's just complicated. Um, I think, yeah, you know, thanks, thanks for standing up for me. But I also think that there are so many things going on there that made it complicated. Complicated, And, you know, I think it was, he, Will was triggered and especially seeing his wife's reaction. Um, but that's also there's just a it's a lot deeper than it appears and so I think that was clear when Will Smith received his award and you know he was in tears and and there was a lot more going on there but I just don't know why I don't think it was appropriate um but because of who they are as well and, and all the things they stand for and I can't imagine the amount of pressure and uh and, and you know the limelight that exists in their lives so I just think it was the all of the above complicated. Okay. It was, I agree with you. Complicated. The last, what, two to three years has been rough on Will. He's become a meme. Um, his wife was in an entanglement. They're trying to figure some things out. So you're saying that was the tipping point of all this. It wasn't just Chris Rock, right? It was, it was all the events leading up to this moment. Now, if you are Jada Pinkin and that goes down, are you proud of your husband in that moment do you calm down and you and you say all right baby you probably should not have done that do you come out and say something now we're not famous and rich like these two people but uh if you were in her shoes what's your reaction during the moment and what's your reaction after the moment you know i might i might recognize that my husband needs a moment and uh just grab your little hand you know, she should, I would have grabbed Will's hand and just been like scurried off somewhere and just calmed down, had a moment to diffuse and, and not just go back to our seats and act like that was normal and, and appropriate or even, you know, consistent with our behavior. It's, I think we're taking a moment for ourselves and, and having a conversation about that or at least just sitting in silence and, and, and sitting with that moment because that was heavy. I think it's important it's it makes will human right he's already been human right we've seen him cry on tv yeah. before but it makes him human people kind of put celebrities on pedestals and act like they don't mess up or they have to be perfect and i i commend chris rock he ain't pressing no charges and i think that's kind of like a, a bro code maybe he goes look i'm not going to do that to my boy maybe he understands what's going on what does that say about chris rock for standing there one being professional through this whole thing and then two, not pressing charges against Will Smith. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, I, you and I were talking about it, how they have both, or all three of them, they have all worked so hard uh, for the reputations. They have done so much work in this industry and, you know, being really respectable people. And so uh, I, I think Chris handled that really well. That was tough. And he, and he recovered from it beautifully, but, um, I, I definitely, I think it's a, still a complicated situation and it, they are human. At the end of the day, we got to see that and, uh, you know, they're not superheroes. I'm kind of juiced that Will did it though, man. I mean, because at some point, right, <laughs> your, your manhood is tested every now and then. And, um, 
maybe that was the like the wrong person to do it with because Chris Rock ain't gonna hurt nobody. You know what I'm saying? Like he ain't gonna put hands on nobody. Will is like six three, two thirty. Chris Rock is probably like five nine. Like probably not the right person to do it to. But I'm also like at some point you got to defend your wife, man. And I could imagine. If, and what people don't know or some people don't know is that Jade is going through something to where she's losing her hair. You know what I'm saying? Like she can't control what's going on with her hair. So that was the tipping point. There's a lot of stuff going on after that. But at some point, man, you got to just walk up to a dude and be like, look, bro, keep my wife's name out your effing mouth is what Will Smith did. Now, if if I was going bald, which I'm already bald, Jen, if you didn't notice, <laughs> and... Um, somebody was talking about me. A female was talking about me on stage like that. You going up there and you smacking it, or are you you just you playing it cool? What are we doing in that situation? Listen, uh, babe, I love you, <laughs> but uh, I will not be walking up on any stage and doing that. I might, you know, we might have a private conversation after the show uh, and exchange some words, but there, there's no way I'm walking up to a stage and doing that. Uh, but I love you. So, so you tell me I got to take it on the chin. You're not going to fight for my honor. I'll fight for your honor. But you know what? You're just more classy. That's why That's why I got you. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're the classy one out of uh, the both of us. And I think this. I, yeah. You don't, you know, I think you don't we agree? Both, we both do good. We both do a good job of it. I, I can't see you. You have human moments too. I, I can't. I don't think that I can see you doing that. All right. So this is a segment that I think I might want to bring back every now and, now and then. I think we're going to call it That's What She Said. Um, because we're going off of <laughs> what she's saying. A random question for you: How crazy is it that Gonzaga lost this past weekend in the uh, in the Elite Eight? Why do you ask me sports <laughs> questions? We agreed that this is about Will Smith. <laughs> you know, you know, this is not my arena right now. Like I even threw in a little sports word for you, but no, this is not my arena. Go Zags! But. Uh, <laughs> You, you know your wife. Yes, I do. And I, I know you. I know you're busy. And I appreciate you taking time out of your precious day to entertain me and start a new segment. That's what she said. That's Jennifer Bumpus. Jen, you have a wonderful day. Hey, thank you, Mr. Bumpus. I appreciate you coming on to my show. You know, gracing <laughs> me with, with your humor. And uh, maybe we'll do it again. Hey, anytime. Anytime. <laughs> Why do I do this to myself every year? Every year I fill out like two to three brackets for March Madness. And for the first three rounds, I'm in it, man. I get to the Sweet 16. I'm like, let's go. I got most of my guys in it. And then for some reason, I just don't have the the magic touch. And I don't pick the right winner. And because I'm in Washington State, I lean towards the local teams. And this year it was Gonzaga, number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament. And I tried, you know, I lean towards them, but I also stay away from them at the same time. Only take them so far because they seem to never be able to get it done. Here's a little history on the Zags football. They got no NCAA championships. They've been runner up in the tournament 2017 and 2021. Final four in 17 and 21. Elite eight in 99, 15, 17, 19, and 21. Add 22 to that. Sweet 16 and 19, 2001, 06, 09, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 21, and 22. They have a knack for getting deep into the tournament, but for some reason they can never get it 
done. And every year I look at the Zags and I'm like, is this the year? Is this the year they're going to be able to do it? They got Drew Timmy and they have Chet Holmgren and a bunch of other guys. They dominated the WCC. They lost to St. Mary's, but they bounced back and beat them in in the tournament. But why aren't they able to get it done? And every time I look at Gonzaga, if you line those guys up, put them on the court, you line them up, I can pick almost any team from the SEC and line them up right next to Gonzaga. And you look at them, you're like, athlete for athlete, the Zags are probably going to lose this game. But they always find a way to get to the Sweet 16. Seven years in a row, they've been in the Sweet 16. But they disappoint. Why did they disappoint this year like they do most other years? I think it comes down to just the competition they see in conference play. That's what it comes down to. If you're not seeing top teams constantly, week in and week out, the chances of you being successful go down. So then I started looking at the recruiting classes. All right, let's pick the major conferences when it comes to basketball, minus the Big East. We know Villanova runs the Big East. But let's just see what the recruiting looks like. So if you guys aren't familiar with recruiting, It's a star system, a five-star athlete. They're pretty much saying, look, this guy's going to play in the NBA or NFL if you're looking at football players. Four-star says, look, he has a really good chance to play in the NFL. He should be a really good college player. Three-star says he's going to make plays in college. Um, And and then after that, everyone's just a toss-up. Now, none of these rankings are for sure, right? There are things that happen where guys who are three-stars make it or no-stars make it to the NFL. And guys who are five-stars who don't make it to the league, whether it be the NFL or the NBA. But that's just the ranking system. So what I did was I go, look, let's see how many five-star type basketball players were recruited or committed to a WCC school last year, the 2021 recruiting class. When it came to five stars, West Coast Conference had two five stars. Pac-12 had three five stars. SEC had eight. ACC had five. Big 10 had three. Big 12 had one. So right there, they're already behind, right? The Big 12 has less five stars than the WCC, but they got two. The highest is the SEC with eight. Now let's go to four-star recruits. How many four-star recruits committed to WCC schools? This is where it gets crazy, right? WCC, two four-star athletes committed to a WCC school. Pac-12 had 11, SCC 15, ACC 16, Big 10 8, Big 12 10. That's where you make your money, right? You bank on some five-star kids going there, but every other conference that I mentioned is in the double digits minus the WCC. Now let's go to three-star athletes. This is where the WCC, I guess, makes a bit more of their money. They got 11 three-stars. Pac-12 has 14. SEC has 25. ACC 19. Big 10, 15, Big 12, 10. So we're looking at if we just add up all the stars together, okay? WCS, two fives, two fours, 11 threes. That is 15 highly recruited players in that whole conference. All right, SEC has 15 four stars alone, 25 three stars. So it comes down to recruiting, right? And it's hard to get the top players in the country to go to W to a WCC. You're banking on St. Mary's as, as your runner up. So it's all about the talent that they're playing. So now I look at their season. I'm like, well, they played some high ranked teams. I went to the Alabama game. Alabama was ranked 16. They lose to them beat. Number two, UCLA lose to number five, Duke beat number 25, Texas tech. All these teams were in the tournament. Then they played St. Mary's three times, beat them two out of three times. In the WCC, you do not need to have the best athletes in the country to be competitive. You go over to the SEC. If you're not plucking a lot of these 
top 100s, top 150s, top 200s, you're not going to be able to compete. So is the committee fooled by the conference that Gonzaga's in? I think so. I think so. Drew Timmy is your best player. I know Shet is going to get drafted, what, top five pick in the league. The kid's like seven feet tall, 140 pounds it looks like. But Drew Timmy is the best player on that team. Chet Holmgren has the most potential, right? Once he fills out 10 or 15 pounds, he should he should fill out a little bit and get a bit better. But Drew Timmy is your best player. Drew Timmy would not be the best player in any of the top teams in the Pac-12, SEC, ACC, Big Ten, or Big 12. He just wouldn't be the best player. Doesn't mean he's not a good ball player. Dude has a great touch around the basket. He's a good leader, has good mid-range. But your best player wouldn't be, probably wouldn't start in these other on these other teams. And the kid who you're supposed to lean on in Chet Holmgren um, it just isn't ready for big boy football yet, but he's going to get drafted off of his potential. So I think when does the, the committee stop buying into the Zags? And I'm a local dude. I, I support the, the Zags. I got love for them. But at some point, you have to stop buying into their conference record and what they do because they're not playing anybody. They're not playing anybody. I just went through all the recruits in these big-time conferences when it comes to basketball. They don't get them. All right, they have 15 top recruits in the whole conference. Okay, the SEC has 15 four stars on their own. ACC, 16 four stars on their own. Big 10, 18 four stars on their own. I hate to say it, but I will never pick Gonzaga to win a tournament again. All right, I've learned my lesson. And until these other schools start getting top recruits, I think it's time we stop buying in to who we think the Zags are. I know I'm going to get some flack because I'm a local dude, but it is what it is, man. It's uh, it's disappointing. They do it to me every year. I will not pick them to win another tournament. They got to prove me wrong. Got love for them, but, man, I think it's time we stop believing the hype. Next topic. It is time for the Let It Burn segment. So when we close out the podcast and I just get something off of my chest, something that's been bothering me, whatever I feel like, it's very therapeutic for me to talk to you guys at the end of this whole deal. This Let and Burn segment goes to anybody who filled out a bracket for March Madness. Just let it go. It's over. Your bracket is busted. And if you're saying your bracket ain't busted, you a damn lie. Your bracket is busted. So what do you do? Where do you go from here? You have to support Coach K and Duke. Even if you don't like Duke, I grew up rooting for North Carolina, but Coach K has been in the game forever, and he is calling it quits. How dope would it be to have Coach K go out on top? That's just like Jordan crossing over Russell and hitting the game-winning shot against Utah. We thought it was the last time we'd see him, but it wasn't. But in that moment, how pretty was that? This is what we have to do for Coach K, man. Coach K got to go out on top. For me, if it wasn't Arizona, if it wasn't, the Zags, it has to be Duke and Coach K, and there's a local kid on that team if you're from the Seattle area, a kid who went to O'Day. So that's on my Let It Burn segment. You got to show Coach K some love, and thank you for showing Bump City the podcast some love. The numbers have been going up every single week. And that's all I got for you, man. Michael Bump is Bump City the podcast, season two, episode number 10. I will catch you guys next Monday. Again, you got to go for Coach K at this point. I'll holla at y'all.